0: Hey there, welcome back to The Bill Rob Show. My name is Robert, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Will Stockdale. We are both ministry associates with Ministry of State. We've got some fun things that we want to talk about today. We'll kind of get into that in, later, but uh, Will, I have not seen you since Fourth of July. How was your uh, Fourth?
1: It was good. It was great. I got to go out of town with some friends. We went to Sarasota Beach, Florida. Had a really great time. Yeah, Wonderful flew back, got back on the 5th, getting back at it. What about you?
0: It was good. Um, We're out in the birds now. We just moved out there. It was fun because even though we were all out there by ourselves and and sort of just spending the time with three of us, uh, we also discovered that our suburb is the rally point for all of the planes that did the flyover uh, in DC. So we saw some really cool stuff. We basically got buzzed by the Blue Angels. It was awesome. My two-year-old, son was just absolutely loving it so that was a lot of fun um tons of fireworks that were shot off it was just it was just a good fourth it was sort of like quintessential sandlot yeah very sandlot very america-esque so that was that was fun um nice.
1: also um, we need to celebrate the fact this is the first time we have recorded together yes. in the same place since march
0: yeah it's it's been a long time the it feels like Anytime I meet with somebody in person that I'm usually used to Zooming with, it feels like, almost like worthy of celebration. Like we should just like throw a party.
1: Yes, so. yes, which we will be doing at some point. Yes, eventually. for sure, for sure. But this
0: episode's gonna sound a little bit different, uh, but that's okay, it's the same Will and Rob show. Uh, we'll, same show guys we've always been. Exactly, exactly, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. But um, uh, we had a couple of things that we wanted to talk about. And so uh, Will, you actually sent me a link to a YouTube video. Uh, that was David Foster Wallace uh, having some comments, uh, sort of about the the current cultural mood. Um, and so you you kind of been you've been watching that. You've been reading some other stuff. What's what's kind of on your mind right now?
1: Well, I think one of the interesting things about those David Foster Wallace interviews, I came on on a on a small David Foster Wallace kick. Uh, the first one was a Charlie Rose interview that happened in like nineteen. Uh, 99, maybe, or it was, and then the, other, the second one was like 2003. And so uh, he, he he passed away in 2008. So these are a while ago, but so many of the things that he was saying and observing are still very relevant to us today and have probably only heightened and become more intense as the years have passed. I first heard about David Foster Wallace and Tim Keller's book, Encounters with Jesus. And he took an excerpt from his very famous Kenyan College commencement address that so many people have heard, a lot of great wisdom. Um, and so he, he just makes some observations and I think some like very sensitive criticisms and concerns that he expresses about contemporary culture. And you know, we're 20 years down the road from him. And in some ways, I think they have just continued to snowball and manifest themselves. And additionally, I've been reading, I read my third book this year by uh, David F. Wells, who was a Gordon Conwell professor for, for a while. And he has this four volume series that's basically on Christian theology and American culture. And it's a, it's mostly a criticism of, of the way that evangelical theology in particular has somewhat declined in some very significant ways. And so I just finished the third book uh, by him. And actually, so I read the first book and the last book in that series. And the third book is called The Courage to Be Protestant. And it's kind of a collection of all three books. It's kind of a, a synthesis in a way of, of all of his thoughts. Um, and uh, it was published in 2008, but so many things that he says are so relevant for today. And one of the big things that he points out is this emergence of the self, uh, the emergence of the self in a postmodern context that's different from the way that the self would have been considered. Uh, in a more modern context
0: yeah the uh, it, it it feels like questions of like identity and personhood are sort of taking on all new meaning now, like it just feels like this is a whole new new conversation um that we haven't really been having so a long time
1: he He starts his his chapter on the self uh, in the Kurdishw Protestant referencing Daniel. Uh, Yankelovich and his work that he did, who identified something what's called generation gap in the '60s, and he talks about the way that the self emerged in the 1960s in a very unique way, in the sense that it uh, became made this major turn inwards, where so many things were concerned about what I could do for myself. In addition to this, the concept of human nature, which is this almost umbrella term, or maybe even undergirding that is common throughout all of humanity. So there is a common human nature in the West and, and a little differently in the East, but there's a human nature that exists largely through a Judeo-Christian lens that every person shares in. Well, I think human nature in his thought uh, has been cut away, has been removed as a little passe, is not a good way to think about things. Instead, we have just the self left alone that is a a collection, is a nexus of intersectionalities. So your ethnicity, your gender, Mm -hmm. um, your age, your generation, all these things come together in kind of, uh, in a way, plastered with lived experience to create the self, uh, but without any human nature to gird it and to support it. So do you think that that is a product of,
0: america like do you think that our sort of infatuation with sort of like individualism and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and then sort of realizing you know the american dream for you like do you think that's a do you think that this all is a product of sort of the american experiment
1: well i don't think that i don't know if it's, uh, it's solely a product of the american experiment i think it takes a very unique shape in America. I mean, so much of this has to come with, with the, um, psychology of Freud that has been borrowed and popularized really to our detriment, where we end up borrowing these kind of pop culture ideas of what psychology is and then taking them
0: way too seriously. Like how you like always end up, you know, the, the person you fall in love with always is like a, is like a mother figure or something like is yes. right. Isn't that
1: Freud? That's, that's yeah, yeah. It's not one thing. It's your mother. Yeah. <laughs> what Freud likes to say. So w- one of the things that's interesting that, that Wells points out is that there's this big shift that continues to happen in the eighties. And it is a shift from, uh, that continues to grow from an individualism that says I'm responsible for myself in the context of my community uh, to I'm responsible for myself to guarantee my happiness and self-fulfillment. And that didn't totally begin in the eighties, but it definitely took on some very clear indicators where you have just this Really, a greedy generation. I mean, you think of Gordon Gecko. Yeah. Movies. Yeah. You think of um, this health craze obsession that has kind of revived itself with us now. But VHS allowed for people to uh, do workouts in their home and to have particular icons in their house to to want to emulate and look like. But in answer to your question, is this uniquely American? Uh, no, I think that this idea of self-focus is much bigger in the west than it is in the east i think that in america it takes on a unique shape because of this consumerist mindset that we have where i can have everything i want that's mine that is cultivated to my own likes and in that way i think that it becomes uniquely american in our just consumption of more and more and more what can i do for me me me
0: yeah so that reminds me of this is sort of tangential but like when you're talking about the eighties and you're talking about this, this sort of self-care self-fulfillment, um, attitude, I'm actually reminded one of my favorite shows is, is the Americans. And it's, it's interesting that that show is set during the eighties and it's, it's a show about, you know, geopolitical forces at war with each other during the cold war. And it's about nations and it's about, uh, the soldiers of that war. But it's interesting that every single character in that show is like obsessed with self-fulfillment and self-care, like, you, it, it's like to comical ways, right? They show them going to sort of those like '80s conference things where you would go and like you'd have those like radical moments of bearing your childhood to random strangers, and that would sort of liberate you from. It, it's it's just interesting that there, that there's that s- strong of a motif in that generation in that '80s vibe, and you've really seen it sort of explode uh, since then. My question is, what's what's been the counter effect on subsequent generations. Because, you know, the the generation that sort of went through that the first time now have had children and are now raising children. I, I, I mean, I'd be curious to what your thoughts are, but I see sort of like the next step. Um, this is what uh, Dick Keys gets into in, in Beyond Identity, where you have, the, you have the new Victorians and you have the new romantics. And so like the new Victorians were these people in the 80s who saw self-fulfillment really as materialism and how can I further my career and feel better about myself and and actualize, you know, my goals, my aspirations. That's what makes me, me. And then they raised the new romantics. who sort of rebelled against materialism and said, uh, you know, it's all about emotionalism. It's about what I feel. And what I feel is what's true and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm, I'm curious as like, what's the next step in this because now you've got a whole now. And then you also have a whole generation now, right? Like who are living through traumatic events of, Of COVID and uh, the George Floyd protests. And uh, I, I'm just curious, like what's the next reiteration of this?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, That's a a really good question. I think, and this is nothing new, but the intensity of therapy and uh, the therapeutic and its rise. And if all we, and, and this, this comes because we have lost sight of God, the center. And this sounds uh, it's, it's like almost a trope at this point but when we have lost sight of God in our vision and all we have is ourselves and we are turned in on ourselves um, it makes a, a ton of sense that of course the most important thing that I can do is to take care of yeah. myself and to make sure that I do have self-care and those things are important not obviously not bashing like going to counseling but when the primary concern about everything is my self-fulfillment my well-being my health, um, unto myself, uh, that is, that is a, that is definitely a religion with yourself as, as God. And I think sadly, you know, the evangelical church has not, and it's not just the evangelical church, but because we we evangelicals, I guess that can be in our crosshairs, <laughs> has done a bad job of defending itself and has been just as susceptible as any other group? Um, yeah. James and Hunter came out with a study in 1983, or he just looked around basically and realized that almost nine out of ten evangelical books published were about self-care uh. and are about taking care of the self. You know, we, in some ways, the cynical side can say, "Look, we there's a huge market out there. That's what people want. So, what books are we going to write to get people in our pews? What kind of books are we going to write to make people feel better ourselves? We're we going to write about, you know, self-fulfillment and happiness. And we see that, you know." over 4th of July, one of my buddies, he was talking, he's like, you know, I don't want any more TED talks yeah. from my church. And I was like, what do you, what exactly do you mean? He's like, I don't, I don't need to know like 10 better steps to happiness. Like I'm, I don't, and it, it happens on Mary, you know, 10 secrets to a better sex life. Yeah. 10 secrets to money management happiness. There's always 10. There's always so, 10. Well, it's the decalogue, <laughs> it's the new decalogue's repeating themselves. And I mentioned this, this, the, the reality of the self as a new religion. Um, and there are two things I think that need to be remembered here. And this is what Wells says very succinctly: is that when God dies, we die.
0: Mm.
1: We, as humans, we need to be called out of ourselves. Martin Luther talks about sin turns us in on ourselves. We are this inward focus, inward looking, just cycle that continues to spin in Abraham, Genesis 12, God called him out. There is this calling out. We desire to be summoned towards something, and unfortunately, oftentimes, we are summoned by ourselves into ourselves to be better selves, and it's this very dangerous um, cycle. And part of this is we're living in a time, the 20th century theology, in many ways, is this oscillation between transcendence and eminence. And so you have this hyper transcendence where God is so removed. How can we know anything about Him? To changing to bringing God into a more imminent way, if He's very near to us. And each time when theology oscillates from one side to the other, something is majorly lost. Um, and right now, I think we're probably in a very imminent time of theology, with with the self being so focused, with we're looking inward, the God within, the God within, desiring to reach some transcendent, but we're looking. I think we're looking in the wrong place by just focusing on our own, on our own wants and desires. And part of the beauty of historic Christianity is the Augustinian concept of rest of acknowledging, yes, we are looking for rest and we sense it within ourselves. But the answer, the Christian answer, is always come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And when I think about this obsession with the self, this, Again, the center and, you know, this idea of God being lost to our sight, it's not that God has been lost. It's not that the center of the world has been lost. It's that we have lost our focus on it. It's that we have turned our eyes from it. When we turn our eyes from it. What we get is dissonance. We get this enormous cosmic dissonance where we're trying to act in a way that isn't focused on the one that brings order and, and consonance to our lives. Mm.
0: Yeah, I just two sort of initial reactions. My first thing is like you know, what you said about like sort of turning inward and, and looking at ourselves. Um, like if we hold to the basic tenet of human depravity, like we're just we're just never going to like what we find there, right? Like that that's just never going to be a place where we're going to find rest and fulfillment. And then my my other thought about this is like wouldn't it be better if we just all read Pilgrim's Progress?
1: you know what i mean like i there's so he mentions wells mentions that
0: yeah like there's this sort of the sense that again like referencing uh, beyond identity by dick keys it's like another thing that we tend to do is we we tend to look at we look for heroes and then we we measure ourselves up against those heroes and when we all, always fail them we end up feeling really bad about ourselves and and sort of we lose that that part of our identity the problem is that no 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 one can bear the weight of our identity other than god and typically our heroes are people that do extraordinary things. And what the, the beauty of Pilgrim's Progress is, is that the, the hero is, is just a person who, who serves as God and his creator. We've sort of lost that sense of like, there's just really nothing more noble you can do than be obedient and love love the Lord with your whole heart and mind and soul. It's funny, I, I see all these, these things on Twitter all the time from like sort of like weird trad, Protestant Twitter. And, uh, it's always stuff like, you know, they'll, they'll show like an eagle flying over a a lake and like catching a fish and they'll go, what's the, you know, what's cooler than that. Somebody will always quote too, with being like being a faithful husband for 50 years. Like we sort of like lost that sense of like, what's really heroic and what's really brings a lot of self-fulfillment. And we sort of, when we lose that, you can sense this restlessness.
1: Yeah. And I think something else that's happened is we, I tell this, my friends occasionally, like, where are the heroes? for us that are out there. And there are some that I can think of men that I like really, really admire. Uh, McChrystal, uh, General McChrystal, uh, Admiral McRaven. Those are people that I really look up to uh, in certain ways. I listened to an audiobook about Robert Iger at Disney. I think he's a pretty great guy. But by and large, it seems that the hero has been replaced by the celebrity. Yeah, yeah. And a celebrity is not really someone you can be like. There's someone you can adore. <laughs> that you can think is really cool, but you can't like really want to be like someone without being like almost, you turn kitschy yeah. in a way when you when you try to be like a celebrity instead of a, a hero. So those are some things that I've been thinking about that talk about a kind of amalgamation, kind of just nexus of things. Uh, hopefully there's some coherence there between them. But I, I, I think a lot as I look out and see the kind of way people are responding to... A number of issues that so much of it seems to be this thirst for therapy um, and again I am thankful for counselors that I have benefited from but um, we have to remember that it is not the ultimate end all the goal of our pastors is not to be therapists but deliver to deliver God's word to us
0: that's great um, we're going to take a very short break and we'll be right back at this Hey y'all, it's Robert from The Will and Rob Show. Thank you so much for tuning in each week to hear our conversations about faith and culture. This show could not happen without you or without Ministry to State. If you like what you hear, make sure to check out the rest of Ministry to State's content, like our weekly devotionals and regular Bible studies. Just visit www.ministrytostate.org and click Get Connected.
1: Okay, back to the show. Okay. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, uh, We just discussed a little bit of David F. Wells thoughts and some ideas about the self. What's your thought? What have you been thinking uh, this past week?
0: Yeah, I guess the most of my time and energy has been spent sort of following the uh, controversy around a recent uh, letter that was published over at uh, Harper's magazine, I was going to say Harper's Ferry, but that's a that's a place, not a magazine. It was a place, yeah. It is a place, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
1: old John Brown.
0: A letter that was published in Harper's Magazine uh, that was making an argument that justice cannot exist without uh, freedom, uh, and it was responding really to much of what we might call c- uh, cancel culture uh, going on. Uh, in the country. And it, to be clear, this is not something that the people that were writing the letter, th- this is not something that they are responding to just in light of statues being torn down. That's like sort of like the the cliche or sort of like the simple uh, example that a lot of the media will put up about cancel culture. They'll say like, oh, look, like they're canceling George Washington. That's that's not really what the, the argument is. That's not really what's going on. What's What's really happening uh, and what they're really responding to uh, are the types of attacks that that go after people who make a claim or who will make a statement uh, that is against uh, the popular idea or conception instead of responding to that that argument in good faith uh, as as a argument to be debated in the public square instead people will go after and sort of find the the most the most horrible thing that somebody has done raise that up uh, as a reason to discredit them uh, another thing that they might do is uh, they'll take your controversial opinion or thought uh, that's sort of disconnected, that's sort of you just speaking into the public square, and they'll take that and they'll take it to your employer and say, well, what do you think about this in uh, sort of in an effort to get them fired?
1: Did you hear the story about this guy posted on Twitter and said, my brother's friend had a Hinge profile and he just put some stupid stuff on there. Like, I like oh, making yeah, money yeah. and I attract to people. Yeah. And some this one woman found it and emailed his employer Yes, saying it's unacceptable. Exactly, like this is
0: this is sort of quintessential cancel culture, um, and so this letter was really a response uh, to that whole movement. And this has been going on for years. And sort of responding to that and saying, look, we are in favor of free speech and the, the free exchange of ideas. It was mostly people in sort of the we'll say liberal, small L, liberal uh, space. Whether that's sort of coming from a neoliberal perspective of the right, and, and or sort of a more progressive liberal, uh, even. Uh, to the left. But I would not say anyone who would probably be considered a sort of a, a neoconservative or any sort of that traditional conservative, religious conservative even, uh, was really on the list. It was really sort of the, uh, the small L liberals, the uh, folks like David Brooks, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, J.K. Rowling, your girl J.K. Rowling uh, signed. Man. Um, uh, and so it was, it was a really interesting letter. It, what really was interesting to me about it uh, is that it's sort of it's another step in this larger conversation which I don't know if will if you've been sort of been following or paying attention to which is sort of is this moment is it a product of classical liberalism in general like is this is this sort of the natural flow and progression like this is what we should come to expect this is sort of the Patrick Deneen argument about why liberalism failed um or are we are we watching something uh, that's sort of disconnected from that? This is a deviation from the norm, uh, sort of a, a moment that, that needs to be handled with and dealt with, and then we'll sort of return to normal. I don't know. That's sort of the, that's sort of the argument. That's sort of the, the debate. Um, and so you sort of see both sides coming at it.
1: How has the letter been received?
0: Not great. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I think... So, today, this morning, I woke up and I saw that there was a response to it. The, the responses were really interesting. Uh, it was one of those things where it sort of like proves the, the point of the, the original letter uh, to begin with. So, like, there was a great response that was like, cancel culture doesn't exist. And look at all these privileged people who signed it. Uh, did you know that they also tweeted this in 2015? Thus, proving the point that like cancel culture does exist. Uh, the, the best response. Uh, from one of the the letters, organizers uh, quote tweeted the response and was like, yeah, 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 but like, what about the actual content of the letter? There, There didn't seem to be a really a rebuttal to that.
1: I think what's so surprising is we're talking about the First Amendment here. We're talking about free speech and for being able to express one's belief peacefully. And maybe that's the question. Maybe they consider the psychological, the potential societal effects of this to be so discordant with what the anti-free speechers want out of society, that they do consider it a violent act because it is detrimental to their vision.
0: It it all goes in, it ties into this very much sort of in vogue mindset that, you know, words are violence, that um, you can actually do real physical harm um, by words on on paper. And that's not to discredit like hateful speech. Like there there is such a thing as, as hate speech, it's bad, and at the same time you can sort of sit back and go what's going on when a sitting US senator uh writes an op-ed responding to the protests going on across the country especially the more violent aspects of the protest it gets published in the New York Times and then out of that the New York you know one of the editors of the New York Times actually has to resign uh out of controversy so at with the main premise being the words that the senator wrote on paper were actually violent and caused harm. That's a whole different development that we're sort of dealing with uh, when, when we say words are violence. I think what's also really interesting is that you have to juxtapose juxtapose this event uh, with recent Supreme Court decisions, uh, specifically about religious liberty.
1: Big wins.
0: Big wins for religious conservatives. I'm, and listeners can't see, it, but I'm actually going to put wins in, in quotation marks. Okay. And That's not to to devalue uh, what happened in in the courts uh, or to even really make a statement about like the political uh, ramifications of these events, because I'm not qualified to talk about that kind of stuff. I'm I'm not a legal mind. But what I will say is this. There was a a Twitter thread from one of the the members of the the team over at Beckett Fund, which is a a big institution that defends a lot of religious conservatives uh, of all faiths uh, in court. And he was sort of responding to the the people who are a little bit pessimistic about liberalism and saying like, well, hey, look, we just racked up, you know, huge wins in the Supreme Court. Like we're winning these cases. And he he basically pointed to a decade of of victories uh, at the Supreme Court. One thing that I was sort of thinking about and trying to grapple with is that it seems to me that where religious conservatives have won is we've sort of... One those cases where where we're allowed to sort of be religious conservatives, but we, we can be that over there. What I see with the court doing is solidifying and sort of making more bold that distinction, that divide between the sacred and the secular. And so so conserv- religious conservatives have won a lot of cases that protects their right to, you know, their freedom of religion on Sundays, in the privacy of their own homes, within their own religious institutions like schools and nonprofits. But I haven't seen a lot of wins for religious conservatives when they step into, quote unquote, the public square, when they're in their office jobs, um, when they are dealing with their communities. And so my sort of takeaway is that these wins sort of seem to be really good for the pastors, for nonprofit leaders, I don't know if it's necessarily that good for sort of the Christian accountant or the this Christian small business owner. I'm less uh, optimistic about sort of those things because you know, and that might be good for a certain perspective based on you know how you view a culture in the church. But like, as people from a reform tradition, like we we reject those those dichotomies between the sacred and the secular. Like we 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 don't think that that's what Christians should be aiming for. Like we we want to be A blessing and we want to be active in sort of the 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 promoting and the flourishing of all people and so it's really hard to do that when you're barred from that space
1: the front page of wall street journal yesterday one of the articles read supreme court rulings expand exemptions for religious employers and the word that i thought was interesting there was expands in that prior to the affordable care act for example our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, for example, or the contraceptive. case. This case is being brought up because some legislation was passed that therefore created a conflict between the two. So when it says it expands it, I don't know if that's actually the word that I would think well should be used. To me, it, that
0: word that using that word of expand of ex- expansion, it, it sort of reveals that we have completely shifted sort of this the standard for what we mean by separation of church and state or or sort of sacred, sacred secular divisions. And so, you know, the the rule now is that everywhere is supposed to be secular and then we give you places where you're allowed to be to practice your religion. Whereas a more sort of traditional reading of the American founding and uh, American history would suggest the opposite, right? Which is like everywhere you're allowed to be religious and then we figure out those places where it just, you know, we have to have exemptions for people who don't follow the, the religious creed or, or the religious uh, orthodoxy. Well, we're not going to force
1: you to believe. Yes, exactly. Like, ex, like the no religious test for offices.
0: Right, exactly. The standard case, you know, we deal with a lot of folks. We work with a lot of folks who work on Capitol Hill and sort of like the default for a lot of young professionals coming onto Capitol Hill is, I can't talk about my faith on work because this is, this is secular space. This is the government. This is public. I, I can't, whereas like, for so much of American history, it was expected that you would practice your religion on Capitol Hill as a senator or a staffer, like you were expected to do that. And then you were also expected to care for people who didn't believe the same as you did. And it's, it's sort of a, the, the whole the language of exemptions and, and expanding sort of reveals that we're working on from a completely different operating plane. Um, so that's, that's been really
1: interesting, I think, uh, a development
0: in these court cases.
1: Okay, so let's bring this down to the day-to-day second greatest commandment love your neighbor as yourself changing context greater emphasis on secularism more people believe that your personal quote-unquote private faith should not interfere with how you do your job with holding government office um how do we best love our neighbors who either think differently or, or think the same like how do we encourage and cultivate embrace these opportunities that are there because the the opportunities are many
0: yes no i think i think that's a great question and i think how i'll start answering the question is by first pointing to what what i fear is is going on right now because my fear is that the compromise between religious conservatives and those who do not identify as religious conservatives the compromise seems to be you can go do your thing but you have to go do it over there and away from us and my fear is that as we as we move further towards that we will f- see more and more christians disengaging from culture and sort of moving into insular communities that are detached and are away from culture which is against our mission against what we have been called to do
1: do you think for everybody
0: i mean it's hard for me to imagine that after recent court court cases after the decisions that have been handed down uh, this past week that Christians are not saying, you know what the safest option for me is just to get my kids out of the local public school and get them into the, private, the Christian private school. It's to, I need to stop doing stuff with these, these charities that I work with, and I need to move my funds into these charities because I'm just deeply afraid of any sort of cross-pollination because I could get in trouble with this group for beliefs that I have with this group. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm going to send my kids to the Christian university. Uh, my kids are going to get a job in a, at a Christian institution. I, I, I just see, to me, it just feels like we're moving closer and closer to a sort of the Benedict option. And there's a lot of, that's a whole different conversation. But I think what, what we need to be wary of is how much are we disengaging from culture because it's the safe, safest thing to do. That seems to me to be what the court cases and, and recent work in that space I've
1: really done. So, I, I guess what I'm thinking here is the question of disengagement versus this is my calling to be faithful to my family, to homeschool, private school, keep your kids in public school, whatever. This is what I feel called to. Absolutely. And I think there's such a uh, plurality of options for what is best. And I think what I see sometimes is when people are like, Christians have only can live in the city, Christians can only send their kids to public school. And I just think. I have trouble saying that.
0: Yeah, no, and I I think you're totally right. What well, my point is, parents are now sort of looking at the landscape. What I think is happening is sort of the compromise that we we've, we've, we're arriving at is, look, the safest option for you, like now, public school is just not going to be an option for you anymore. Like the safest option for you is you're going to have to go to the local Christian private school, and that's great when a lot of people are thinking of this of sort of this issue in sort of a defensive mode and i was texting with a buddy of mine who's who's a a lawyer and we were kind of going back and forth about the court cases and he said what this what this shows shows me is that we've been fighting a defensive war this whole time and what's interesting is that we're an evangelical faith we actually believe in going out and telling people why we believe what we believe and we believe it's good for all mankind
1: right like it's and in that light i think to again, because Wells, I just love so much what he has to say. We have gone from good news to good advice. We've gone from Christ has risen indeed to, uh, hey, let me tell you how you can be happier.
0: Yeah. It, it, it's interesting why we've not, we've, got, we've gone on the defensive and we've said, let's, let's just figure out how we can carve out the space for us. Instead of the argument being like, hey, we're going to actually tell you like why it's good for businesses to have practicing Christians in their this, now that's not a that's not a legal argument. That's a cultural persuasion, right? Like, and and so I I'm interested to see coming out of this. We we talk a lot about you know what does a new politics look like for the evangelical church. I, I think we've got to get out of sort of a de- defensive mindset, and we've got to really be thinking about offense. And I don't really mean offense in like a you know crusading kind of offense. Attack I,
1: culture exactly.
0: war. Exactly. I mean more sort of like we need to start making positive arguments for like why we believe what we believe and why we think it's good for culture. Um and so to sort of tie it all together, that's going to be really tough in cancel culture because we are a faith like our heroes are deeply flawed people. Like if you think about it, like David, for example. Right? Like David does not pass cancel culture.
1: St. Augustine, my gosh. Yeah, like, like Confessions could never get published today.
0: Exactly. And so and, you know, we're also a faith that acknowledges that, like, we are, in a sense, like, hypocrites. But we don't often practice what we preach. And that's fine when you're in the, when you're in the church because we believe in, in the abundance of grace and love, right, and sanctification. But that's going to be really tough to communicate to a culture that's that sort of following cancel culture. And so I, I think that that's going to be a development that, that Christians are going to have to be really wary of and then also just be mindful of. Uh, as they engage with their neighbors and and make decisions for their family.
1: Good stuff, Robert. Thanks for sharing that. The cancel culture is definitely something that's on my mind and I think a lot of people's as well. Great. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with this.
0: Fan of the Will and Rob show? Make sure to check out Ministry to State's other podcast, Faithful Presence. Join host, Reverend Michael Langer, as he explores the paradox and importance of Christians living as the elect and as exiles in our world, as well as practical and theological discussions of faith in the workplace, the political arena, and the local culture. Just search for Faithful Presence, wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to click subscribe. Now, back to the Will and Rob Show. <laughs> We're back. We just wanna spend the last couple minutes chatting before we get out of here. Uh, Will, I don't know how you're feeling. I I am just done with, with COVID. I feel like a real sense that I need to lament what's going on with,
1: with COVID-19. Yeah, I've had these weird, um, okay, I'll start this. I was told that you gotta experience DC in the summer. Like it's so great. There's so many fun things to do outside. So many great events. It's just, it's kind of the best. It's humid and hot, sure, but like summers in D.C. are wonderful. And that isn't going on. Like that's not happening for anyone, anywhere. And there's kind of a sadness there. Like what would it be like if there was a summer in D.C.? And then I, on top of that, I've had these weird like almost nostalgia moments where like I'll, you'll smell something or I'll smell something or like hear something and it'll take me back to like summer as a kid. Mm. And these like either being at the pool, we had this great conversation uh, with some friends talking about summer days at the pool and just uh how wonderful that was or being at summer camp and that i think what's sad like sure you know like i don't get a summer this year but how many little kids look forward to summer and playing wiffle ball being at the pool all day going to camp to see friends that they only see once a year just not having to do school and running around that stuff that those little sweet savories that yeah are not around
0: yeah it's it's been extre- extremely painful i know for me and my family. I I had that weird thing. That, I had a weird thing happen to me the other day where I walked into my closet. I saw all my suits that I'd be normally wearing during the week and on the hill, meeting and having great conversations with folks and and doing Bible studies. And I walked out. And I told my wife. I said, I just really want to wear a suit. Like, I just want to be back in sort of like normalcy. It's been really painful to watch as a as a father because my my two year old doesn't have anyone to play with. And the other, my wife took this this really sad photo like so sad it was kind of funny uh photo of my son this,
1: this is good parenting it
0: is <laughs> it was it was funny he's sitting at this little bench and he's just kind of like he's got like sort of a dejected look and he's sort of just pushing sand like all by himself and you can just tell like he just wants to be running around with other kids and playing um and so imagining that's yeah it's just really painful uh, as a parent so and i think you know, I, the reason why we wanted to sort of end on this is because I, I think other people are feeling it too. I, almost every conversation that I do have with people now is I just can't wait for this to be over. I cannot wait to be back in person. And so, um, we know, you, you know, listeners, you guys are probably feeling it too. And so we just wanted to let y'all know that you're not alone. Uh, it's okay to lament it. And, but that we, we have a lot of hope that it'll be over soon. And, um,
1: yes, prayers, prayers that it will, I know, we are praying for this to end. I, yeah, prayers that this that this does change and that this does stop and that we end up being more grateful for what we normally get for sure for sure.
0: Well, this has been a fun, if not very different episode than uh, what we've normally done but uh, exciting stuff. Uh, will thank you for your your great comments.
1: Yeah, uh, Robert, thanks for talking about cancel culture. Hey yeah, anytime.
0: Uh, don't, don't cancel, cancel us yeah don't, oh! cancel, <laughs> don't cancel us please. Thank you for listening to the Will and Rob Show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at RD Hassler, and you can follow Will at Stockdale Will. We will be back again soon.